Matthew 15, uh, verses 1 to 20. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these makes a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what makes a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. This is God's word. Good evening, good to see you. Um, welcome. If you're uh, new to church, if you've just arrived in London, uh, my name's uh, Matt. Uh, he's called Matt, I'm called Matt, everyone's called Matt uh, here. It's good to have you uh, with us. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father, thank you for uh, your word to us. Thank you that you uh, give us a reality about ourselves so that we might know you. And not many people will give us the reality about ourselves. And not many will speak the truth to us in uh, love. Some will speak the truth, but not in love. Some will just say nice things about us, but not tell us the truth. Father, thank you that your word this evening to us uh, speaks the truth to us. In love, and we pray that by your spirit each of us would be willing to hear your verdict in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story as we start, I guess you probably heard this uh, story of two criminals. They both lived in the same town. They were both um, terrible criminals. They were brothers. And um, everyone knew them as the bad people from the town. And then one of the brothers died. And the other brother went to the vicar and he said to the vicar, I wonder if you'd take the funeral of my brother. 
Uh, he's a terrible guy, but I wonder if you could just, um, I'll pay you if you will say of my brother that he was a saint. Now the vicar thought about it for a minute, uh, the church roof needed repairs, and so he thought, well I'll go for it, a bit of extra cash would be helpful. And so on the day of the funeral, in front of the whole town who knew this guy was a terrible man, he stood up in front of uh, them at the funeral and he said, uh, this man was a criminal, he was awful, he was well known as a ruffian, he was wicked, he was a liar, he was a thief, and yet compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> now what is the problem with the world. What's the problem with the world? What's the problem with us? Are we saints? Are we sinners? We're in the book of uh, Matthew this evening. We have been for the last couple of weeks. Page 982, Matthew chapter 15. And we're seeing the identity of Jesus Christ. So it goes up to the culmination, chapter 16, verse 16, when Peter sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But this section contains... Controversy. Jesus is controversial. That's what we're seeing, the controversial Christ in these chapters. And tonight's controversy is what puts someone out with God? What puts someone on the outside of a relationship with God? Now that might not be your exact question this evening. You might not express it like that with God, for example, even in the picture. But think of it uh, like this. Think of it another way. What do you assume... What do we assume is the basic problem with the world? I guess there would be largely two responses to that. Either the problem is that is out there or it's in here. It's either out there, it's other people, it's circumstances, it's politics, it's politicians, it's exterior codes of morality, it's them. That's the problem. Uh, or it's in here. I think it was the magazine um, Pogo, I think it's an American magazine, who coined this um, phrase, we have met the enemy and it is us. It was a great soundbite, but what do you make of that? Do you agree with that? We have met the enemy and it's us. The problem, largely, is me. What is the basic problem with the world? That's the question we're looking at uh, this evening. And it dramatically affects, your answer to that dramatically affects how you think about yourself, how you resolve problems with other people, what you think the solution in society is, and it dramatically affects how you approach Jesus Christ. Because if the problem is out there, then we need more rules, we need more police, we need better education. But if the problem is in here, if it's deeply wired into us, then we need a deeper solution than those external things. We need deeper help. And Jesus' verdict as he stepped into the world as God on earth, that was his claim, as he stepped into the world as God on earth, was that the problem is not solved by things out there, rules, external traditions. The problem is in here. And the solution is his help, will be his death on the cross. That's the solution that he's going towards in Matthew's Gospel. So there's the question again. What puts someone out with God. And we've got a couple of headings just to take us through these verses. And the first is it's not breaking human traditions. It's not breaking human traditions, verses 1 to 14. If you look down at these verses, we've really got an exchange, then there's evidence, then there's warning. So there's an exchange, verses 1 to 3. And it happens because some teachers arrive and they deliberately, it seems, come to Jesus to confront him 
about his disciples. And their point is, look, Jesus, your disciples, they aren't washing their hands before dinner. Now, what's this all about? Is this about, is this about manners? Yeah, and another thing, Jesus, there was a guy over there who was eating with his mouth full. It was awful. I mean, is this, you know, is it about manners? It's not about manners. This is about religious ceremony. The Pharisees were saying that the people had to perform these external traditions if they were going to be accepted by God. And if they didn't, well, they were out with God. And do you see that Jesus is controversial because he confronts them back? The most authoritative teachers of the day, Jesus confronts on this issue head on. And he says, verse 3, yes, and you are holding on to human traditions over God's word. Uh, So there's an exchange, verses 1 to 3. And then the next bit, there's evidence that Jesus brings against them, verses 4 to 6, things like hand washing. Or verse 4 to 6, this controversy about a gift of God. What's going on there? Well, this seems to be a, a technical and a binding gift that someone could promise to give to the temple. Elsewhere, it's in other Gospels, it's called Corban, a technical binding gift that you could put aside of money to give to the temple. It wasn't in God's word. Their principles laid out, but it wasn't defined as such in God's word. It came from an oral tradition that ended up being written down and people were now using it and saying that people had to do it. Whereas in fact, God's word clearly says that you're to honor your father and your mother. But you see people are caught in a trap because they've put aside this binding gift and then mum and dad run out of money and they know that they're meant to honor their father and their mother, but they say, mum and dad, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't help you because I've set aside this binding gift to the temple. I can't financially help you. and So they're caught out by a tradition. It's not in the Bible. And so they go with that rather than God's word. And so Jesus' summary, verse 6. Do you see verse 6? You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. That's the evidence that Jesus puts before and that just pause and, and distinguish that there are some traditions, I guess, which are optional um, and permissible. So I guess hand washing for hygiene, fine if it's not mandated. But as soon as you start mandating, you have to. Jesus objects against that. Or a wedding ring. I mean, that's a tradition, isn't it? In, in this country, many will be wearing a wedding ring. It's a tradition. It's fine if it's not mandated. If you if if you start saying you have to wear a wedding ring, otherwise you're you're out with God. Well, Jesus would oppose that. But if it's optional, it's permissible. And yet there are some traditions that are in conflict with God's word, and so are rejected by Jesus Christ. And here's an example: this gift, technical gift, a tradition that cuts against the teaching of God's word. And so his main point is about how someone is unclean with God. That's that's how the passage is topped and tailed in verse 11. That's the point that he's making. It's about cleanness and uncleanness. Verse 20, it's about uncleanness and cleanness. That's the main point Jesus is making. But you see, he takes an opportunity in this conversation to teach on the matter of authority. And so it's good for, just for us to pause for a second here and think about this uh, this issue. What would it look like for us? to nullify God's words with our tradition. What would that look like? I'm trying to think. I wonder what sort of traditions we might have at church or just wider. So a couple of things. 
I wonder what might that look like for us. Traditions that we have of what puts us out with God. Those are the sorts of things. I wonder, and, and as I examine my own life, I wonder if I have a traditional set of terrible sins and then I have in my mind a set of respectable sins. So there are terrible sins that would definitely put someone out with God. Prostitution or drug dealing. And yet I have in my mind a tradition of respectable sins. Greed, pride, envy, white lies. And I think as I've looked at God's word this week that I unwittingly live with that, with my tradition. And I don't know if you find that that's the same for you. I wonder if we collude on that. That we say that only those sorts of things matter. Well, we've got a tradition. A tradition of the sorts of things that would put you out with God and the sorts of things that we can just shake hands on and collude with, with each other. But if we think like that, then, well, for example, God's word consistently speaks about pride as a sin that God opposes, that he hates. So who are we to say that we can traditionally tolerate that when God says the opposite? Which am I going to hear, God's word or my or our church tradition? So that would be one example. Or another example would be a conversation I've had recently in the last couple of weeks, which is why I just share it with you. So speaking to people looking into the Christian faith who would be from a um, a Roman Catholic background and who would ask me this question. Um, in fact, I've had this in the last couple of weeks. A couple of people who've said, look, when, when I look at um, the message that uh, you seem to talk about in your churches of how you get to heaven, you get to heaven by a free gift of forgiveness of sins, uh, I'm hearing in the tradition that I've come from uh, that it's not just that, but it's I have to go to Mass and I have to worship Mary and I have to do indulgences. And uh, why is there a difference? And so someone said to me, and this is almost their first question as we met up to talk about the Christian faith, is can you explain the Reformation to me? I don't know if you generally get that question as an early question uh, in those sorts of conversations. But I had to say as I, as I looked at it that the heart of the issue in, in some of these divisions was the issue of authority. Where does authority come from? Does it come from tradition or from God's word? I don't like to particularly speak about this. I'm not talking especially about how individuals would relate to God, but certainly the public documents of the Roman Catholic Church would state that it is both sacred tradition and sacred scripture that are equally accepted as the source of authority. Now, where does that go? Well, it means that when you come to issues like how do we get into heaven, well, it's accepted both Jesus and our work together. And yet God's word says it is Jesus Christ's death alone. Now do you see something of that in these verses? What Jesus is saying is, look, there's God's word and then yours, uh, there's your tradition. And Jesus lays out the evidence before them and he finishes this section with a warning. So we've got to exchange evidence, warning. And there's a warning for the Pharisees, verses 7 to 11. You hypocrites, you hypocrites, you're just the sort of people that the Old Testament spoke about. You care about the exterior, care about what you say with your lips, but you have no concern about your hearts. And so Jesus restates that what goes into a man's mouth doesn't make him unclean. The problem's not external stuff out there, the problem's internal. It can't be solved by external rules or washing. And then there's a warning for the disciples in the next few verses as well, verse uh, 
12, the disciples, you see, came to him and asked, you know, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this. People always are. And Jesus said, verse 13, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. If a man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Say two images, verse 13. Uh, Those not planted by God are those who teach tradition, trumping God's word, and yet will not be corrected on that. I guess that would be the heart of the issue. They would stand by that. They won't give in to God's words. They would hold tradition. So we need to be warned about that. Where we come across that in ourselves, where we spot that in others, verse 14, we're to leave. They are blind guides. I don't know if you saw much of the Paralympics, but there was a, if you ever, if you saw the, the blind runners, it was absolutely extraordinary. They have a, a, a runner who would be sighted, who would go ahead of them and who would run. I understand that a number of those guys sort of ran out of puff halfway around, which must be so annoying. But worse, of course, would be attached to someone who was also blind. That'd be worse, of course. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you're listening to tradition, if you're not going back to God's word, on things. If you're just willing to accept the traditional interpretation rather than going back to God's word, you're attaching yourself to a blind guide. Jesus warns his disciples, stop. Trust God's word. Especially on someone, on how someone is in and uh, how someone is out with God. So do you see that, how that first bit works? What, what puts someone out with God? And these teachers are saying, well, it's it's really an external problem. That's the problems out there. And so rules will solve it. Wash your hands. uh, Perform duties. Follow traditions. And Jesus says, no, no, it's it's not that. Human traditions can't put you out. But he goes on to show something more devastating and deeper, which needs a deeper solution, which is this. The real problem is having a human heart. Let's pick it up from verse 16. Let me just read these verses again. Are you still so dull? In other words, don't you get it? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, These are what makes a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. So Jesus is crystal clear. Whatever enters goes out of the, down the latrine, whatever. And he's saying stuff that comes from the mouth actually comes from, do you see where it comes from? It comes from the heart. It is the human heart that puts you out with God. That's the source of the problem. The heart of the human problem, someone's put it. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That's exactly, that's Jesus' take on this. Now the heart in these verses, he's not talking about body organs. He's not talking about the literal body organ of the heart. The heart in the Bible is your thoughts, is your choices, is your longings, is your conscience, is, well, is you. That's what the heart is. It's, it's you. It's another way of saying, you are the one who puts you out with God. Do you remember that very striking letter, again, famous letter G.K. Chesterton wrote years ago. The Times had this question, what is wrong with the world? Everyone wrote in with uh, various 
views about the problem with the, the world and what it was, and G.K. Chesterton, the author, just wrote in a very simple letter, Dear Sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the problem. He's saying, your heart, you and I, we, well, it's striking, isn't it? Do you see? We create evil thoughts for I mean, put yourself in verse 19. Do you see? For out of you and me come evil thoughts. In other words, we're like a, you know, a weapons factory. Imagine yourself like that. You're like a weapons factory. You create weapons to use against people. That's what you and I have done this week. We're like a weapons factory or we're like a, I don't know, a laboratory that creates poison that can harm people. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he lists that in verse 19. Out of your heart and my heart come murder, comes adultery, comes false testimony, comes slander. Now this is not an easy truth to accept or persuade one another of. We don't like this. I mean, I look around and I know you and you look so, you look lovely and you look charming and yet do you see what Jesus is saying? He's not saying that we're incapable of good. The Bible would say that by God's common grace we're able to do good. But the Bible is saying, do we know our hearts? The Bible is saying that we're to assume that this is true of us, that we are weapons factories creating evil thoughts, laboratories creating poison, breeding it. And actually in our most honest moments, I think we know this. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but just to sit on the tube for five minutes, just to sit on the tube, maybe try this tomorrow morning, and just listen to the thoughts that bubble up in your mind. Maybe it's just me, but they are ugly thoughts that just bubble out of my mind. Maybe try that tomorrow morning, five minutes. See if you can get to five minutes before despairing, actually, as you do that. See, when was the last time that you thought, I just, I wish he, I wish he wasn't around? Or you murdered someone's reputation? When was the last conversation you had when you didn't just push yourself up a little bit and push someone else down just a little bit? When was the last time that you sugar-coated reality or false testimony? And we say, we're not like those bad people over there, and yet actually when we see, and when I look at my heart, this is what I see, this is what I find. This is what Jesus diagnosed. That the seed of evil is in here. And that if we had more power and more influence, we'd harm more people. Now that is a devastating thing that Jesus is saying about us. He is saying to us, will you start to assume that the problem is not out there, but will you start to assume that the problem is in here? Now do you see that if we take this on board, that drastically changes how we approach different relationships or different situations that we face this week. Let me just be honest for a minute. I speak to all of my married married friends who are um, who are self-aware on this and say when you get married it is like having a mirror up to yourself and you start to realize your own selfishness in a way that you've never realized it before. And lots of us have been married recently and we can see that. But I have to be honest that in my self-deception, often I think, well, you know, I mean, that's obvious that, you know, put those two together and that's exactly what you'll find. I'm not speaking about any of you. I'm not speaking about any of you here. But do you see how deceived I am? 
how deceived I am. And I guess I'm not alone. We say we see this. We say that we see the selfishness in our hearts, but I don't think we do. And I keep on assuming that the problem is out there and not in here. So will you join me as Jesus encourages us to to start to assume that the problem is me? I'm not asking you all to assume that the problem is me. I'm asking you to assume also that the problem is you, is your heart. Do you see the devastating diagnosis of Jesus? That it is this. It is this that puts you out with God. Not external rules or problems out there. It's deeper. Jesus, the most loving and clear-sighted person who's ever walked on this earth. This was his diagnosis of the problem. Now what do you do with that diagnosis? I think you've got a few options. Just like you would with any medical diagnosis. You could hide it. You could try to overcome it, or you could receive it. So you could hide this diagnosis of Jesus. And personally, we all do that. We cover this up. We manage our Facebook profiles. We accuse others. We tell white lies. We rationalize. We, you know, we euphemize. I'm not angry. I'm just irritated. We euphemize. We compare ourselves with others. We We say, well, let's just share the blame on this one, shall we? We blame it on a million and one things. And yet psychologists will say, secular psychologists will say, the worst thing that you can do is start to shift the blame to others. And we recognize that when we see others doing that. So we could hide it. Culturally, of course, that's a disaster to do as well. The culture just says, well, it's just... Sickness and illness, that's a disaster. People would recognize that. Here's a, here's a quote from a psychologist in the 70s. As he thought about this, he said, For several decades, we psychologists lo- uh, looked upon the whole matter of sin, uh, non-Christian psychologists, moral accountability as a great incubus and acclaimed our liberation from it as epoch-making. In other words, we're off. Don't need sin. Let's not talk about that. But at length, we've discovered that to be free in this sense, that is to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger of also becoming lost. In becoming amoral, ethically neutral and free, we've cut the very roots of our being, lost our deeper sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics themselves, we find ourselves asking, who am I? What's my deepest destiny? What does living mean? He's saying if you remove this sort of thinking, culturally, you end up in a very different place. I think we're starting to see that. So 2009, a groundbreaking case in an Italian court a few years ago about a murder, a murder committed by a man called Bayo. Got a year off his sentence because people started to say that he had a gene which shortened his fuse. And do you see what that does? If you start to say that sort of thing. I mean, a live issue in the Anders Breivik trial. Is this guy sick or sinful? Evil or ill? So one dead end would be to hide this. Jesus says we need to acknowledge this. The second way out, or try and overcome it. Try and overcome it. More external rules, more morality, more traditions, prove ourselves, live a better life. And yet there are some illnesses that you can't overcome by going to the gym. And Jesus says that this is a cancer in our deep me that we can't overcome by trying harder. 
So there are two dead ends that Jesus would turn us from, to hide it, or to seek to overcome it. Now why would we, why would we choose those, and why do we all choose those often? Well I think it's that we'd be just, we fear that if we, if we accept this truth about ourselves, that our self-esteem will plummet so badly that we'll never recover. I mean this is devastating truth about us. And we fear rejection. Because if you come clean that you are like this in your office, if you come clean about this culturally, people reject you. And I think that's why we fear. That's why we hide. We cover ourselves in fig leaves. We try and overcome it by proving that we're really not that bad because we think that if people really knew, if the masks were off, and if God knew, well then we'd be rejected. Because you know that's what happens. That's what happens with things that we come across that are rotten to the core. I came, um, I was away a, a bit recently. I came home. I wanted to cook some dinner on Thursday night. I went to, into the cupboard. I pulled out an onion. Now, this is what I found. I don't know if you can see it from the back. Uh, this was an onion that went uh, off. It was rotten uh, to the core. It wasn't going to go in my spag bowl. And so it went into uh, the bin. And that's, of course, what we do, don't we? We just, we just throw things out. Something that's gone off, just throw it away. And I think that we fear that that is all that God will do to us. That's that's what we'd do to us, actually, if we knew. That's what we'd do to others if we really saw. And so we hide. We seek to overcome. But Jesus encourages us to receive this teaching about ourselves, painful as it is, so that he as the doctor can cure it. So the third response the response of the Bible, of the Christian, as we close, is to receive this truth about ourselves. Now just quickly, what does that look like? And what would happen? What does that look like? Well, just look at the next account that we have, and we'll look at this more next week. But here is a, a lady who comes to Jesus, and you see it's a picture, I think, of uh, how we're meant to respond to Jesus. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It's a picture of someone who's come to the end of themselves, who kneels before Jesus, says, just give me crumbs. It's a picture of a Christian, a person of faith. It's not the start of living a moral life. It's someone who's come to the end of themselves. That's what it looks like when we receive this truth. We say, Lord, help me. And then here's the striking thing. What happens next? Well, Jesus Christ, even though he's diagnosed the problem in verse 18 and 19, does not move away from people like that. In fact, his life moves towards people like this. He moves towards people who have hearts like verse 19. Whereas the rest of the world would throw us out and pull back from us, Jesus Christ is the one person who knows the worst about us and moved towards us. And the way that he did that was moving step by step towards the cross. He saw the depths of our human sin and he went to the cross that we might have a new heart and forgiveness. If you've ever done Christianity Explored, you know the summary of what we talk about there is that we are more sinful than we ever imagined, but more loved than we ever dreamed. 
Because there are some people who, who don't really know us. They don't really see the deep truth about us and so they kind of quite like us. And then there are others who know the worst about us and they pull back from us. But Jesus Christ both knows the worst about us and loves us. There is no one like him in that sense who knows everything about us, who knows verses 18 and 19 for you and yet will go to the cross for you. So that if you're a Christian, you know You know that the penalty for sin is paid. The power of sin is broken. The presence of sin, it still remains. And you make progress as you fight sin, but it often seems slow. And so we need to hear and remember again that the problem is still inside us. We're forgiven because of God's grace. He knows the worst about us. He paid for us. He loves us, knowing what we're like, even though he knows what we're like. And yet as we live as... As we live as a church family this term. You know what? The masks are off. That's what Jesus is saying. The masks are off. The problem is inside us. And you and I need to cry out as this woman did as we grow as Christians. Lord, help me. You know, sometimes you do get a a dose of reality and you see what you're really like. What do we do at that point? Do we hide it? Do we seek to overcome it and prove ourselves to others? Or will we receive it and say, Lord, help me? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I wonder if this evening you would start to say that for the first time. Lord, I see that I can't earn my way. By keeping external rules, I'm going to fix the problem. Lord, help me. And I wonder if, as a Christian this evening, someone trusting in him, that you would cry out, as you see something of your own sin, that you would cry out, Lord, help me. Help me. And as we sing in our final song, we'll see that we're not alone in that. We're not alone in lonely sin. We're we're in it together in one sense. But we're not alone ultimately because Jesus Christ came and knows the worst about us and went to the cross. And that means that this truth doesn't have to squash us so that we never recover as we fear Our self-esteem isn't in how good we are. Our self-esteem is being loved by someone who knows the worst about us and went to the cross for us. So do you see the difference? The different ways of approaching the problem of this world. It's out there. Well, if we take that into situations and relationships, it will be very different to accepting what Jesus says and saying, it's in here. That's right. That's right. We close with the story of a guy called Malcolm Muggeridge. Some will have heard that name before. He's a journalist, um, very anti the Christian faith, became a Christian. And he says that one of the turning points in his life was when for the very first time he realized that the problem was not out there but was in here. He describes a situation when he was uh, away from his wife Kitty and he was a journalist who was traveling in India. And uh, one evening he went to swim uh, in a river, a nearby river in the town where he was staying. And as he was swimming, he saw over the other side of the river uh, a lady, assumed it was a young lady, uh, bending down, stooping at the water's edge. And he tried to suppress the thought, I'm away from my wife, I can do whatever I want. But he couldn't. 
And so he found himself swimming towards the woman on the far side of the shore. He tried to squash his conscience down, but then he just started swimming faster and faster. And in his mind he said that I had decided that I would go over the other side of this room, meet this woman, and do whatever I wanted. And so he started swimming. In effect, he said, I was starting to try out-swim my conscience, which was pulling me back. And I kept swimming and I kept swimming. And he says he got to ten meters away from the edge of the river. And he saw that the woman who he'd thought was beautiful was uh, toothless and old. He describes her as wrinkled. He said that, in fact, she had leprosy. And he said that at that moment, he started swimming back in the opposite direction. And here's what he said. He said, as I started to swim away under my breath, I started to say to myself, what a, what a horrible leprous woman. And then he said, for the first moment in his life, he had a moment of realization and realized the problem was not out there, but that his heart, his heart was leprous, was dirty inside. And he would say, as he came to Jesus Christ later on, that that moment of self-realization, that moment of recognizing his own sin, turned him around, healed him, and gave him hope. Do you see in these verses, Jesus Christ has told you and me the most important thing we need to know about ourselves. Will we accept it? If we will, then we'll see the most important thing about Jesus Christ, which is that he still loves us, knowing the worst about us, and died for us as our Saviour. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, I find these, uh, we find these truths so hard to take on board. Anyone else who was saying these things, who saw our hearts as clearly as you do, uh, we would not want them to, uh, to see that clearly. We would pull back from them. And yet, Father, um, because of the cross of Jesus, we know that uh, ultimately you tell us these truths for our good, for our healing. And so we pray that you would help us as we live together, as we walk through this week, to assume and accept your teaching about what we're like, uh, that we might seek your grace, know your help, and want to live with you by grace, uh, fighting our sin and growing in trust of you. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.